The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome again, everyone. Some of you know I'm about to leave for a retreat that will uh, I'll be busy until the end of the month, coming back on the 1st of June. So I thought it'd be nice to take the evening to review our practice together. You might have thoughts from your practice. Feel free to bring them up at any time during the talk as I just review the basic approach to not just sitting meditation, but just mindfulness throughout the day. Some of you might have been here last Sunday. I spoke about this chapter in Ajahn Chah's book where he's talking about living with the cobra. And this is the thing about having a mind you know, our mind can be part of what leads to, you know, really exalted, beautiful states of consciousness, beautiful states of the heart, the mind, releasing, accepting, loving, forgiving, rejoicing, appreciating, being grateful. So clearly we know, hopefully all of us know that this heart is capable of really beautiful pleasant, wholesome states of mind. And, I'm sure we all know, it's possible to experience real states of health, where the body and mind become very entangled, contracted, heavy, in a real knot, with greed, anger, and delusion, basically. So, last week, just with that image of the cobra, and... Ajahn Chah was very careful to say that, you know, he's using the cobra as the world. And you could think he's saying, well, the world's terrible. But we know better than that. We know cobras aren't terrible. We don't want to be bit by a cobra. But the cobra itself is not a terrible, evil thing. It's just the cobra doing what cobras do. And the world is also just the world doing what the world does. All the beautiful aspects of the world, all the challenging aspects of the world. But the challenging aspects of the world, like loss, for example, or illness, or winning the lottery, you know, can be a difficult experience. So there are all these challenging experiences. Some are pleasant, but they're still challenging. Some are unpleasant, clearly challenging. But that's just what the world does. It's not that the world is evil because it has ups and downs, pleasant and unpleasant experiences. So the grasping the cobra is the problem, not the cobra itself. It's what the mind does to the cobra. It trips over it, takes a hold of it, wants to make it a pet. But can we just let the cobra do what the cobra does? You know, really giving permission, allowing the cobra to be a cobra, allowing the world to be the world, but not getting confused by it, not taking it personally, not taking the cobra personally. So one way to help us remember this practice is this simple teaching that I bring up from time to time. It's been used for decades now. It's a, just a simple way of reflecting on what it is we are cultivating. And it's the acronym RAIN, R-A-I-N. makes it easy to remember. And it's just a nice way of, of understanding the different facets 
of this path of awakening. And of course, central to this path of awakening, the teachings of the Buddha, is uncovering for ourselves this inherent capacity of the mind to know or to recognize. So that's the R in RAIN, to recognize this is how it is. But it's an activity. It's like just because we're alive doesn't mean that in that moment we're recognizing the way that it is. So like if you check right now in your experience, if we're going to recognize the way that it is, you see it requires a particular value. We have to value knowing the way that it is. And it, it's not so easy because mostly what we value, just the way we're conditioned, we value this ongoing thinking about the way that it is. So in order for me to really value the way it is, to recognize the way it is, momentarily at least, my mind has to let go of its identification with thought, and it has to actually turn, in a sense, turn toward what's already here. But it has to drop its attention, its attachment to thought, and recognize, oh, this is what it's like to be sitting here at Common Ground. This is what it's like to have a mind. This is what it's like to have emotion. This is what it's like to have an attitude or a mood. Right? It's like this. And you see how this, whatever this is, it isn't the same as any words we might give to describe this. They're really two different things. It's useful to be able to articulate this. That way we can share with another human being. I can talk about how this is for me. And you might have some intuitive sense about what I'm talking about because of language. But the actual words I use, thoughts I use, that's not this, this experience. So one's conceptual and one's what we call Dhamma, the way it is. Dhamma is non-conceptual. Now, thoughts are part of Dharma, but not the content. Thoughts is a present moment activity, you know, that movement of, what do we say, mentation, you know, you know, the mental activity. That activity of thought, the actual, you know, whatever that little flow of mental energy is that we call thought, that, as an actual experience, thoughts moving through the mind, so to speak, that's Dhamma. But when the mind gets identified with the content, and in getting identified with the content is no longer aware, it's just this being known, that's not Dhamma, that's ignorance in a sense. The ignorance isn't that there's content to our thoughts. The ignorance is the forgetting that thought is just thought. And so in a Buddhist system, in the way the Buddha taught Ignorance means the mind is misperceiving the way that it is. It's getting confused by the movement of life. So what moves? Well, sensations move, sounds move, like that sound of the jet. It's a flow. In the same way that sensations are a flow, an, on, an ongoing movement, changing process of sound being heard, sensation being felt, thoughts being known. So as long as the mind is not forgetting that thoughts are just thoughts being known, that there is this, in a sense, a river 
of mental activity, a flow of mental activity, one thought, emotion after another. And of course, the flow of sensation in the body is very related often to the flow of mental activity, the thoughts, images moving through the mind, and even related sometimes to the hearing and, of course, to the seeing, right? They're all related or affecting, influencing each other. So there's this very interdependent flow, and at that level, that direct level of knowing, we call it Dhamma. And the first part of our practice, the most important part, is to, it's a, for, it's, can be like a reawakening. It's the most obvious thing, but we've, in a sense, gotten very disconnected from it, just to recognize the way it is, to see that that's a possibility. You know, normal language, you said being present. Like, are we aware of inhabiting a body? And like, what that actually means in this moment to be embodied. You know, the the experience of hardness or weight, heaviness, softness, coolness or warmth. Or just to be sensitive, unavoidably sensitive to sound. We can't help but be sensitive to sound. And emotion. And sight. And seeing is different than what we tell ourselves where we are seeing. Right? There's seeing, it's an actual contact. You know, the photons, or I mean, not that the biological explanation really covers it, but the heart, the mind, is being impacted by sight and sound and thought and sensation and smell and taste. It's a real contact. And it's ever-changing. You know, it's not like contact and that contact lasts. It's only our thought that makes it seem like it's static. Like when we have the... We think we're having the experience, I'm at common ground as a constant. But it isn't constant at all. It's quite dynamic. But we just... The mind conceptually sums it up as, I'm at common ground. I'm listening to talk. And it can have the sense of some static experience happening to a static me. But it's not that way at all. It's a very fluid thing. In fact, we're many different things during the hour and a half we're here. As a, you know, actual experience, we're many different things. Sometimes maybe there's a sense of inspiration, sometimes sense of boredom, sometimes we're the person oppressed with physical pain, discomfort, sometimes we're really happy and feeling good. You know, in a way, in a very literal way, there are many births and deaths in this. And our first and foremost job is to keep recognizing that whatever this is, that it's this. Not the interpretation, not the thought, but it's the actual experience. And unless we break through the conceptual overlay, we really haven't begun the practice. So... This initial realization, which is available to all of us, is sort of the essential first step. And then, of course, we have to do this first step over and over again. Normally, like when we, we will have a moment of real mindfulness, but then we'll immediately think about it. It's like uh, 
Bhante Gunaratana, this wonderful Sri Lankan teacher who's been in the West now for many decades and has written a couple of really popular books, including Mindfulness in Plain English, that I'm guessing a number of you, of you have read. A wonderful beginning book, but also a book for uh, all students at all levels. Anyway, he has this way of, you know, describing the practice where we have a moment of mindfulness, of mindful presence, but then we will endlessly proliferate, have many, many thoughts, and be very quickly quite disconnected from the present moment. But it will have the appearance as if we are being mindful, but we're thinking about a moment of mindfulness way back when. So we've lost it. So first we're learning to recognize, and any time during the sit, you can just remember that first letter in the acronym, RAIN. What's the mind knowing? What's predominant? What, in a sense, is asking for attention in this moment? Is it the breath coming in? Is the mind, mind, the quality of knowing in the mind, is it inclined to know the anchor, the breath coming in or the breath going out, or inclined to know the anchor of the body? feeling the body sitting, or be aware of sound? Or is there some distraction that's predominant, so the mind can just see that that's just what it is. Thinking is just thinking. Planning is just planning. Judging is just judging. Not adding any valuation to it. It's like not good that the mind's judging, or bad that the mind's judging. The judging is like this. And if the mind is caught in attachment, then the mind recognizes that, oh, the mind is attached to the judging. It's identified with the judging, and that's like this. That, that experience of being attached, taking it personally, is like this. So the mind is breaking through the conceptual overlay that whatever I'm judging or planning, that's me doing it, to a moment of, in a sense, just a, not an actual sense, but in a sense, stepping back and recognizing, oh, it's just judging being known. It's like this. And then in order to sustain that pure, simple, momentary recognition, it's like this. We need the next two letters in the acronym RAIN, the A and the I. And it's really pointing to the act of the receptive or the, um, yeah, the, the receptive and the active part of mindfulness. So the A stands for acceptance, as you probably know, and the I for interest. And you see how once I've recognized, oh, it's just this being known, to sustain that moment by moment by moment, to not be confused by any conceptual overlay, because thinking has a lot of momentum, so it's not just going to disappear. But it can go into the background, off to the periphery, if the mind is no longer confused by the thinking. So we're not making thinking bad, because that's just more thinking, of course. We're just recognizing that thinking is just thinking, and we do that by accepting. We're accepting the sensations, we're accepting the thoughts, we're accepting the sounds, the sights, we're accepting things as they are, and we're interested. Accepting, trusting, leaving things be, that's the receptive part. So part of being skillful in the moment, skillful in the sense of being mindful, is a willingness to relax, and to trust, and to accept. But if we're just accepting, we tend to go to unconsciousness to get sleepy because we're just like, well, the mind just equates acceptance with it doesn't matter.
But it does matter. We want, I mean, the whole point is to like get right in the middle of things. Alert, awake, right? The whole path is a path of awakening. So we need to balance the acceptance with interest, which keeps the heart or the mind right in the middle. Alert. This moment is relevant. I mean, if this moment isn't relevant, it's as if we've decided life itself isn't relevant. Because this is the only life we have. There is no life from the past, and there's no life in the future. Those are just ideas we have now, in the moment. Right? And it's really important to get this. There is literally no past. And there is literally no future. There is only this. And so if the heart gets lost in thought or gets confused by acceptance and feels like, oh, this is just this, I don't have to get involved, I don't have to pay attention because I'm accepting, then we miss it. So we need a balance. And part of it is you getting a sense of your own personality, the own conditioning of your mind. And do you need to emphasize more of the interest and of the practice or more of the acceptance, more of the active or more of the receptive side of practice? So for those of you who are more type A, charging, I'm going to do this right, I'm going to be a lot better than the rest of you, then you're obviously going to be emphasizing the A and the acronym. Can this be accepted? Can this be okay? You know, so the mind is recognizing, oh, it's like this now. This mind-body experience is like this. As it actually is, it's like this now and like this. In order to sustain that present moment awareness, then we really need to emphasize the acceptance. Can the heart let it be? Can the mind let it be? Non-resistance, non-control, not trying to attain something, not trying to get rid of anything. Can the heart just accept, allow things to be? But if you tend to be more of a victim, more of just letting other people take the lead, then you might need to really emphasize the interest, a kind of uh, a strength, really, to show up that there is something to see here, there's something to realize here, there's something to understand here. It's not enough to be passive, to really wake up to go beyond the habits of the mind, my mind, this mind right here, it has to do something active, which we're calling be interested. That's the I, right? Or you could use the word investigate. But not the investigation, it's, it's, it's a very particular kind where the mind is uh, in this pure state of awe. Like, I don't actually have to go anywhere to be interested. It's more like dropping, just having that state of awe, like, Whoa, this is how it is. It's relevant. It's so uncertain. It's so changing. Because once we go even a little bit beyond our concepts of what we think is happening, we're in this world that is amazing, literally. It's like you can even, you know how it is, like uh, you used to do these little games when you were kids, like staring contests. And you know, it always got a little trippy after a while. Because as you're staring at somebody, you know, after a while, it's like the concept doesn't hold up. And you start to come into the present moment, you know. And it's like the whole world comes alive. Have you noticed that? It's like it's really weird after a while. Or, you know, another thing we did as kids, you'd repeat a word over and over again. 
you know, like sink, sink, sink. And after a while, the concept and the identification with the concept falls away, and you just got that sound, sink, but it's not related to the concept, and it's like, because, and it's not that the word sink is some mystical gateway to the unknown. It's just that everything is the unknown because Dhamma, the way it is, can't be grasped or contained by concepts. But our mind is conditioned to hold tightly with identification, with attachment to concepts. So we're living in this protected state. It's almost like a staccato where we're grabbing a concept and we get a momentary stability as this ego sense there, and then we jump to another concept, and, and we have this thread of being contained by our conceptual meaning we're giving experience. But there are many, many gateways to this, and this acronym RAIN is just a, a generalized way of breaking free of this conceptual overlay, recognizing, accept, balancing the acceptance and the interest, depending on how our mind is in the moment, you know, emphasizing the interest or emphasizing the acceptance. We need both, but generally one is going to be already relatively well-developed and the other one weak. So get the weak up to speed with the strong one and then develop, then continue to develop both. But if one's already strong, your tendency is going to want it to develop that one. But notice which one's a little weak and get interested in it. So we have recognize, we have accept, we have interest, and then the N is non-attachment. And this is such a potent, potent reflection, the N, non-clinging, non-attachment, non-grasping. A couple weeks ago I mentioned this wonderful, short, pithy statement from Achan Cha. He says a number of times in his talks, this is the time meditation monk in meditation master um, that uh, who's dead now betrayed a lot of the some of the Western teachers like Jack Hornfield and many others and he talked about and I mentioned this I think in the guide it said uh, realizing the reality of non-grasping that's like a summation of our path we're learning to realize a reality of non-grasping the possibility of non-grasping and this is really what the N in the acronym is pointing to. Non-attachment, non-clinging is an invitation. We can't do it. It's not something that me, as a guy who wants to be really good at meditation, I, I'm going to not grasp. But I'm interested in non-grasping. And it's like we're looking, the mind is looking into the moment, recognizing it, accepting it, being interested in it, and then... In that process, in that steadiness of being with the present moment, moment by moment by moment, because the acceptance and the interest allow for sustaining that present moment awareness, because we're accepting it and we're staying interested, and there's a continuity of awareness, and that allows the mind to contemplate the reality of non-grasping. Like, what would non-grasping look like right here and now, as life is tumbling forward? It's, in a sense, the ultimate contemplation or reflection. So as you're, you know, when you do feel relatively steady in your life, steady with mindfulness, whether you're formally sitting or just out in your day doing your thing, then this is what we should be contemplating. 
You could be talking to a friend or cooking dinner or brushing your teeth or walking from your car to your place of work or whatever it might be. But there, the mind is recognizing the present moment as it is. It's accepting it. It's interested in the reality of the present moment. And the mind is contemplating this possibility of non-grasping. By noticing the experience of grasping, and as we notice how the mind might be grasping in that moment, it's contemplating the possibility of release. Because the proximate cause for the letting go into non-grasping is seeing the grasping. But remember, that doesn't, I'm not saying that the proximate cause for realizing non-grasping is letting go of grasping. It's recognizing the grasping. That's all. Because as soon as I construct the idea, I have to let go of the grasping, I've actually set myself backwards into an ego-based state. So it's not that we contemplate how much I should be letting go of grasping and why somebody else I think is so much better at non-grasping than me or wishing I were like the Buddha who evidently got to the place where he never grasped his experience was completely free, or thinking that maybe I'm better at non-grasping than other people, or that the whole idea of non-grasping is stupid, that life should be lived with real passion and screw the consequences and go for the gusto. You know, so we can have all kinds of thoughts, self-centered thoughts about grasping. But what we're being asked to do is to recognize the present moment, accept it, be interested in it, And then in that steadiness of present moment awareness, continuous present moment awareness, to contemplate grasping and the release from grasping. It's another way of saying to contemplate stress and the release from stress, suffering and the release from suffering. That's the whole game. That's really what it's about. And this leads to everything human beings actually aspire to, all the happiness or peace or a sense of wholeness that we intuit is possible for us, this is the way. And it's not Buddhism even. You know, it's like, this is just basic human common sense. To be interested in this, like training the mind to recognize, to connect, well, it's like this now. Like, you don't need an ism to sort of value that. And that's how I would think about these four things, as four Values. We value this capacity to recognize, oh, it's like this. This mind-body experience, it's like this. It's a grounding, right? And there's a real sense of safety and protection when we're connected. In the same way that we feel very vulnerable, like when we've gotten into a, a fantasy about, you know, really lost in our thoughts about things, a lot of times people get really frightened, really freaked out even, And it's because, on some level, the mind knows it's not connected. It's like, when we're really away from the present moment, we're vulnerable in so many different ways because of that disconnection. So in the opposite sense, when we are connected, when we have recognized it's like this, there's a real sense of safety. Like, doubt leaves the mind. Because there's no doubt. Like, when I'm just feeling my hand touching my thighs, really connecting, recognizing that experience of contact, the warmth, the sensation there. There's no doubt in my mind. 
It's like there's this ringing truth. Contact is like this. And then if I accept, if I stay interested, then, then it's like, uh, we say, coming into the moment, into alignment with Dhamma, the way it is, or Dharma, the way it is. And again, you see that this doesn't have to be an ism. It doesn't have to be Buddhism. It's like, oh, I'm doing Buddhist stuff. No, this is like, like what human beings were designed to do. We were designed to be connected in this sustaining way. And, of course, the most relevant thing for a human being to do is to contemplate the arising of stress, stress and the cessation of stress. Or, given the sort of pointing out from the Buddha, it's really uh, making stress synonymous with this inner activity of grasping, the mind clinging, attaching, identifying, and equating or relating, correlating happiness or peace with the release of that very same thing, the non-grasping, the non-clinging, the non-identifying, the non-attaching of the mind. And so, of course, we this is exactly what the mind would be contemplating if it knew what it was doing. And then learning is unavoidable, or what we call in this tradition insight. Insight is unavoidable. The mind having deeper and deeper insight into the reality of non-grasping, the direct experience of freedom. So this is the path. I wanted to save a little bit more time tonight. Um, we have about 25 minutes. I have more I can say, but I thought I'd open it up for questions. It'd be nice to hear about people's practice, what you've been learning, questions you have about this acronym or this particular way of holding the practice, remembering the practice, or anything <clears throat> that seems relevant. Any stories from your practice you'd like to share of challenges or successes or anything that seems appropriate. So what comes to mind? Yes. Say your name again for me. Amoja. Yeah. Yeah. Because the well, there's elements of ignorance. Whenever we're Amoja was asking about the experience of avoidance, which if you haven't recognized it. We should, because it's probably one of the most common uh, ways we try to protect ourselves. But it's an inefficient way of protecting ourselves. So on the one hand, we can appreciate avoidance, because in a sense, it's coming out of compassion, but compassion without a lot of wisdom. So we're taking this short-term approach to pain, which is avoiding it or pretending it's not there or denying it. But because the mind isn't that clear, it doesn't realize the long-term consequence of that strategy. Because the only way we can avoid something is to practice disconnecting from the way it is. And that's the, that is the essential deal with the devil, right? Because when we make that choice to disconnect in order to protect ourselves, we start experiencing the suffering of being disconnected. Right? That's what we call alienation or that experience of separation. And this is like the crux of all of our existential pain is feeling apart, feeling like we don't belong, feeling ashamed, 
Right? And so all of that is born from that very simple and it seems like appropriate strategy of avoiding something. Like, you know, the obvious example is a child who experiences a lot of pain and they go into denial. You know, they suppress it or repress that pain in some way. And it's not like that's wrong because that's just what happened. You know, given the wisdom that was available to that being at that moment, that was the only way he or she could figure out to protect themselves. And so that's what they did. But later, hopefully, at some point, the mind begins to contemplate the avoidance. So the mind, in that uh, momentum we have, the mind then in a moment does the R. Recognize, oh, I'm avoiding. I'm avoiding something. Can I accept, first of all, not blame myself, not hate myself, but let me just accept the fact that I'm, that I'm avoiding this pain in my life, this painful place in my life, right? So first we recognize that that allows for the acceptance. That gives us some stability. And then as we get some stability, the interest keeps us with it. But just because I'm accepting it doesn't mean I'm not going to turn toward it. So with the acceptance and the, the safety of the acceptance and the stability, I start, in a sense, the attention starts to include the pain that the avoidance was about avoiding, right? So we're getting closer and closer, more intimate with it. That's what the interest does. It opens, it unpacks the whole thing. And then as we're unpacking, we're contemplating non-grasping, not taking it personal, whatever that pain is. And it could be a two-year process or a two-month process or a one-hour process or even a one-minute process, depending on how deep, how scary, how intense that pain is that we're that we have been avoiding, but now we're turning toward, right? And the point is, all four of these things, the recognition, acceptance, interest, and non-attachment, non-clinging, it really allows for this steady, patient transformation. And that's what we need. So really, the whole practice is addressing this ancient habit of avoidance. You could say avoidance is this uh, wrong turn we took at some point in human history where because our as our language, our minds got more complicated, we imagined, literally imagined, that we could uh, avoid the ordinary suffering in life by pretending it ain't so. And that mistake, that sort of unfortunate mistake, led us down a road of using imagination, using our concepts to disconnect from the pain, from the reality of the present moment. And you know, you can't, you can't disconnect from the pain without also disconnecting from the joy and the feeling of being alive. So then we have so much depression and we feel like my life is so empty. So then what do we, we become vulnerable to seeking intense experiences. We start cultivating greed for something real, like good Haagen-Dazs ice cream or good Ben & Jerry's ice cream or good sex or good entertainment or because we feel so disconnected. So it sets up all the ways that we suffer through greed, fear and aversion, disconnection, delusion. All of it comes from this basic mistake that we think we can use our imagination to protect ourselves from life. But here's the thing. We can't protect ourselves from life, from the uncertainty, the vulnerability of life. There's no way to protect ourselves. We are firmly in the middle of life, 
There's no two ways about that. So either we have to kind of own this reality of insecurity and kind of not try to back away from it, but live in it, live right in the middle of that vulnerability. That's the way to real happiness. Thanks, Samoja, for bringing that up. Yeah, say your name, please. Ben. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky concept because we, the mind tends to react to the words non-self or not-self, anatta is the Pali phrase, emptiness got used in later traditions, more. it was there from the time of the Buddha, but later traditions talk about the emptiness, and it's really what we're saying is, uh, what the Buddha I think is saying with that term is that uh, there's a very skillful uh, way to begin to relate to experience that helps the heart release its unproductive, inefficient um, strategies of being happy, like avoidance. And it's this theme of everything is nature, everything is impersonal, or that whatever this is, you know, this mind-body thing that's happening here, there's really no center to it. So we contemplate the absence of there being a center. Now I know right now, because of the way our mind is trained, there is this appearance that there's a center to my experience. Like, it's right here. It's me. You know, this is happening to me. But if we keep contemplating it with a honest mind, and we're just recognizing the way it is, accepting, being interested, and... We're not trying to prove a point. Like, we're not trying to prove to ourselves that there is a self here. Right? We have a, we're taking a neutral approach. We're actually interested in the truth. We really be, it just dawns on the mind that there isn't a center. Like, when you're contemplating the experience of thinking, you're just aware that the mind, thoughts arise in the mind, you'll start to notice that you're not doing that. You know, you, there's not like a little, um, person there at the control center Okay, think that, think that. Oh, thoughts arise, and what are they arising out of? Well, they're arising out of the conditions of the present moment. It's a natural event. Spring, the season, it arises out of the natural conditions that are here. It isn't a thing in and of itself. It's a conditioned thing, right? It's an interdependent arising. Every aspect of the personality, every aspect of what we conventionally referred to as me, is just a natural arising out of innumerable causes and conditions. And the more we look in that honest way, we see there's really no center to this movement of anything, let alone this mind and body. So not-self is really referring to this other view, which is, you could say, there's me having an experience of this, out there, right, in this dualistic notion. Or we can start uh, practicing with another view, which is everything that is being known is what we call nature. And this nature has no center to it. It is what the Buddha called uh, codependently arising or interdependently arising. And when there's this, there's that. Without that, without this, there isn't that. So that... This moment 
is arising because of all the conditions that were there allowing for this to arise. And if the conditions were different, it would be some other moment arising. And you can't really pull somebody out from that codependent arising. So this is what we mean by non-self. It's nature. And you know, we, from an, a dualistic point of view, we understand that. It's just that out of habit, and this is a conceptual habit, we imagine there's somebody outside of nature. I mean, scientists and just regular folks like us, we get that nature, you know, all, and even all of you, like, I can sit back, you know, especially if you're like sitting back on a bench at the Mall of America or at some park, and you're just watching a bunch of people come and go and kids playing, and you can really see it's just like this interdependent, you know, one thing happened affecting everything else, but we never seem to include our own mind and body in that reflection. So this is the thing, is we're, we're including psychology, you know, the psychology of our own mind, the movement of our emotions and thoughts and, you know, all that mental activity. We're, we're contemplating that as nature in the same way a naturalist would be out in the woods seeing the, you know, the synchronistic or the, um, not that was the word, um, you know, the interdependent nature. There's another word I'm trying to remember, but, you know. Hmm? Unity. Yeah, but I'm, how things sort of play off each other. Symbiotic, there you go. Yeah, the symbiotic nature of of things, you know, that everything's playing off of everything else. And uh, that's the same thing in our mind. And at the inside and outside, that's actually, we don't make that distinction in Buddhism. I mean, conceptually, we make that distinction. There's me, and it's useful, you know, just getting kind of healthy boundaries, (laughs) like to distinguish self and other. But not to get confused by those distinctions, they're just conventional distinctions. Because our actual experience isn't that way. It's just like this. So, and the way I think of it, there's a person, there's a self. There's a being. And there's the self or the non-self. And the non-self is what causes, or the self is what causes problems. It's really the idea of self that causes problems. There isn't a self. It's just nature. It's always been nature. There's actually not a problem. But there is an appearance of a problem. And the appearance of the problem is there arises in the mind the thought of me. And then immediately when there's a thought of me, there's the thought of what threatens me and what me wants. And all of that starts to have a charge because if if I really want it, then there should be a charge associated with that want. If there's something I'm afraid of, there should be a charge associated with that fear. And so there's these implications for having that identity, being confused by that identity. So the the resolution is to no longer be confused by the idea of self. We don't need to eliminate the idea of self. We just have to be uh, no longer take it to be something that it isn't. It's a convention. And as long as the mind understands it's a convention, it's not a problem. But when the mind gets confused by its concept of self, its imagining of self, then it sets in motion what we call dukkha, this inner stress we create around the idea of self, what the self wants, what the self is afraid of. So it's just a psychology that's gone awry um, because of you know being confused by our, the mind's own constructions. 
we got pretty good at constructing things. As the mind language got more sophisticated, it's as if the mind created something, and then it was so good at whatever it created that it got confused by it. And, you know, through human history, there have been myths or um, literature has captured this in stories that it's amazingly profound, but we miss it, you know, these stories of how the mind has constructed something and then gets diluted by its construction. There's a great story maybe I'll just share about, and some of you have heard me tell it, this uh, wish-fulfilling tree where somebody's walking along in a hot day, feeling really hot. Imagine, it's, God, it would be so nice to have a nice shade tree to rest under. And around the bend, there it is, a beautiful shade tree. person sits underneath it. Ah, oh, so cool, so nice. It'd be great to be hanging out with someone here. Sure enough, a beautiful person appears. Sits down next to this person, very happy to have a good, attractive, pleasant person to be with, and imagines it'd be really nice to have something to drink. And sure enough, on the side of the tree is a couple cool beverages. They open them up, having a good time together, drinking, relaxing, and then just keeping on imagining things that would make it even more beautiful, someone to serve them some food, pleasant music. And then at some point, the person got suspicious this is very weird. <laughs> Everything I imagine shows up. And then he imagines, I wonder if there's a demon fattening us up. Sure enough, up in the tree, he sees this fierce demon. I wonder if he or it's going to eat me up. Sure enough, sees the teeth, demon comes down, eats him up. And this is like a, just one of many stories through human history where we have a sense of the kind of danger, how it's manufactured. But within that bubble, it's as real as anything is, in the same way that our nightmares are as real as anything until we wake up. And this is our predicament, you know, having this mind. Other thoughts from your practice or questions about the talk tonight? What you've been learning in your practice? Wondering about the demons? <laughs> Even worried about, like, the demons is a demon, isn't it? You see, it's like even wanting to do the practice, right? Like, this is what happens when inspiration arises. We can get confused by it and think, i got to really do this practice or I'm screwed. And to see, like, now, in that moment, the practice is recognizing the fear or the greed. Oh, that's just that. Can that be accepted? Can I be interested in like having to be the one who gets it down? It's like, I'm going to get it, I'm going to put it in my safe, put my Buddhist practice in my safe, so nobody can take it away. And you see how that makes the heart tight. That's dukkha. Right? So we contemplate the reality of non-grasping, even the practice. Like how to engage the practice without grasping it, making it mine, something I've got to achieve, something that I can be a failure at. Again, I never am good at these things. I can't tell you how long in my practice that that was a strong theme, at least for 10 years, where either I was in a place of uh, hoping that I was further along than I really thought I was, or thinking I wasn't far along at all. 
you know, and I just had a in the early years really confront that identity with doubt. I had to recognize it, I had to accept it, I had to be interested in doubt until I could contemplate over and over and over again the reality of non-grasping, not taking the doubt personally. And then it became less of a problem. Still there, I have to still be vigilant with doubt, but at least I have some confidence to, that that it isn't what it appears to be, that it isn't self. It's just doubt. It doesn't have to be this painful, toxic experience, when there is identity, when there is attachment, it hurts. Yeah, Nicole. Nicole, let's uh, shut the ventilation switch off. Tyler, could you get that right above the thermostat? Thanks. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, by the way, Nicola is giving a talk in August here at the center, um, so you might be able to make that. And uh, this question, I think, comes up for us when we start having some real success in our practice, because uh, we 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 directly sense freedom, the possibility of freedom, the actual experience of freedom, and uh, which is, of course, liberating. And then, in the later moments, the mind gets identified with the liberation, with the freedom, the sense of freedom, and it wants it. And then, so we get impatient with the imperfections. We get impatient with the habits of grasping in the mind. So we're layering on top of grasping, the grasping for the grasping to be over. So it's amplifying the experience of grasping. But it's totally understandable. I don't think there's any way around that. When we experience the possibility of non-grasping, of just letting things be, letting go in this deep way, this this real way, the, as, as long as the ego still has this this pattern, the ego is just a pattern, a tendency of the mind just like all of our other patterns or habits. So the taking things personally is just a pattern. And then at some point, that pattern is, of course, going to take that experience of freedom personally. That freedom happened to me. That was amazing. I felt so free, so light, so alive, so happy, so loving, so effortlessly skillful. I, it would really be great if I could cultivate this. So it won't sound like you're being ignorant when you say this to yourself. It's going to sound like, yeah, I guess I'm just really on board with this practice. So that's why it's so confusing. Because it, that thought in the past would have been very skillful. That ego-based thought, like, boy, this is a great path. Because we always begin from an ego place. There's no way to begin this place, this practice rather, from a liberated place. We begin as an ignorant person, taking things personally. We take our practice personally. But then once we have real experience, 
that strategy won't work anymore. What works is patience, because only the ego wants it to hurry up. The non-ego has a lot of patience. You know, nature is willing to take as much time as it takes. It's like, when you think about nature, it doesn't care that it's a late summer, you know, that spring has taken so long. There is nothing in nature that is upset about the late start. But a human mind, through language, we can construct the idea that it's too bad that it's been so long for the warm weather to come, right? Or if we have a big infestation of, you know, deer ticks this season. That, to us, can be bad. But nature doesn't have a problem with that. Or if it's like the perfect summer, you know, 68, cool breezes, you know, partly sunny every day. You know, nature isn't proud of that, <laughs> doesn't get attached, doesn't want it always to be that way. So this is a nice contemplation, using nature as a example. So the same thing that, uh, like from the point of view of complete and perfect freedom, it's really okay that the mind goes back to striving, wanting things to hurry up. Like that the path of purification, like there is a linear part of the practice where the habits of the personality that get attached, that are impatient, that are striving, that get hateful, get upset. From the place of wisdom, there can be a lot of patience, a lot of forgiveness, a lot of understanding that these unproductive patterns aren't self. They're just patterns. And they arise due to causes and conditions. And as long as those supporting causes and conditions are there, they will arise. But as they arise, as the pain, in a sense, wakes up the mind, wakes up wisdom, then wisdom will recognize this is how it is. Can this be okay? Accepting. Can the mind be interested in the underlying causes? Can I realize the reality of non-grasping with this unhealthy uh, psychological pattern? So finding freedom with being an imperfect human being. That's So in a way, the first step is just to get a sense of the path. Like if you want to just break down the sort of how the path progresses... The first step is just to have a sense of rain, what I'm calling rain, that actually this is a very functional, transformative way to be in the world, to recognize, to accept, to be interested, and to realize the reality of non-grasping, non-attachment. So that's the first step. Then the next step is to actually have a real experience of freedom. Now, we've all had experiences of freedom. This is not new to anybody in this room. But to be clearly aware when you're experiencing freedom that this is freedom, that's unique. That's what we would call, like in normal language, a mystical experience. And sometimes it's quite ordinary. It just depends on how it arises for a person. Sometimes it's earth-shaking. It can take months before somebody sort of integrates what happened, or even years. You might even feel a little discombobulated for a while if it's been a bigger experience of freedom. So first we get a sense of the path. Then we have experience of freedom. And then there's this deeper, longer process, this you could call it an integration or a yeah, integration, where the mind is realizing that the freedom can't be stained. 
even by the continuing imperfections in the mind stream, in the personality. And that's, you see how that's really amazing that there is this process of the personality becoming more and more skillful. But the freedom is okay being imperfect. Nature doesn't care if it's taking long for the personality to be, to become kinder and wiser and whatever, more patient or more forgiving. Doesn't mean we don't care that we're not interested in becoming forgiving or patient. But there's no suffering. The mind, the heart isn't going to create suffering because there's still an, an imperfect human being there. So we don't need to be perfect to be free. We can be free. Freedom is already available here and now. That's, that's a different kind of realization. That's a more profound. That's in the direction of full awakening to get, really get how it's okay to be imperfect. Uh, to me, that's like the heart of my practice is really working at that edge of being really free as an imperfect human being. For a long time, I was trying to be a perfect human being. Now I'm not, now I'm trying to be free with the imperfections. And it's 8.30, so we need to leave it here. we we'll just take a breath together, let go of the words. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.